This week's episode of Invest Like a Boss is brought to you by Masterclass. They sent me over a trial of this and I was like, all right, there seems like some interesting people on here. I should definitely check it out. First off, I got my cooking game way leveled up by Gordon Ramsay. I made his famous Michelin star winning lobster ravioli. It was fantastic. And there's another class that I know you're gonna be interested in because it's on the same topic that we talk about here on Invest Like a Boss. I'm talking about legendary investor Ray Dalio. I learned all about his four quad his all-weather portfolio, and it was so interesting. I went back and re-watched it and even made my own four-quadrant chart on my wall. I'm going to send you guys a picture of that, actually. I'll put it up in the Boss Lounge. Honestly, Masterclass has been so useful. On most nights, I replace it with the trashy TV that I was watching <laughs> instead. So get something useful out of your TV time. And you know what? I bet you it costs you even less than that network where you're streaming the trash TV show at. That's because you can take one one-on-one -on -one classes from the world's best in pretty much every topic. There are top-level people in just about any subject that you want to learn from. With a Masterclass annual membership, it only costs $10 a month. And it is the holiday season, so why not make a meaningful gift for you and anyone else on your list? Because both of you can learn from the best to become your best. There are over 180 classes to pick from, with new classes added all the time. So boost your confidence and find find practical takeaways you can apply to your life and at work. And if you own a business, like a lot of you bosses out there do, you can use Masterclass to empower and create future-ready employees and leaders. So this holiday season, give one annual membership, and you know what? Masterclass is going to give you one free as well when you head over to masterclass.com slash iLab. That's right, you can get two memberships for the price of one when you head to masterclass.com slash iLab. That's masterclass.com com slash i l a b offer terms apply welcome to the invest like a boss podcast i'm sam marks i'm derek sparts and i'm johnny fd we're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors business owners and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash What's up, bosses? Episode 285 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Derek Sparts here in Los Angeles. Johnny is in Ukraine, but not his normal spot in Ukraine. Where are you at, Johnny? I'm in the Odessa. Oh, I've been there. Odessa, Very nice. This actually yeah. kind of looks like the Airbnb we were at, too. <laughs> is it the same place? I can't remember where <laughs> we were at. That was like four years ago. But yeah, this place is super nice. It's 25 bucks a night. Probably goes for 100 normally. And it's like a block away from that main street. No Nice. It's cold there, though. I mean, Odessa was kind of like like a beach town when I was there in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it's always cheaper in the winter because there's no one here, no tourists here. But especially this year, it's especially cheap. <laughs> so Johnny is actually heading out of Ukraine for a while on his way to Thailand. That's a whole adventure that you've probably heard in previous episodes. Just getting there. So we're going to talk about Ukraine one more time, at least. I'm sure it'll keep coming up on the podcast. But why don't you tell us who we're talking to today, Johnny? Because I'd never heard of this guy, but he's actually got a, a pretty good following on YouTube. Yeah. So his name is Jake Burrow. He worked as a, you know, those guys who are in charge of pressing the button to shoot a nuclear missile for the U.S. military. Uh, everyone assumes it's the president, but I hope it's a lot more complicated than just pulling a drawer on the desk and hitting a button. <laughs> No, yeah, yeah. So actually, there's there's like these little these underground 
I don't want to call them bunker stations, but they're kind of dollar around the U.S. I think there's like dozens of them. Yeah, there used with, to be one really well. At least yeah. the rumor was really close to where I, I lived in in Minnesota at one time. There was always a rumor that yeah. there was one nearby there, which was kind of cool and kind of scary. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just to be prepared. It's it's like you know, I think the president can call and press a button and be like this is uh, code red. We're, you know, uh, we've been attacked by you know whoever North Korea or Russia. Send a nuke. And him and one other guy, they have two keys and they turn them. So I think he, I, I think his official title was like a nuclear something, uh, you know, officer, but uh, definitely knows a lot about, about military, has that background. And he's just, been, he's just a very like a logical, rational guy that I've been following on YouTube since the war started for my every other day updates. You know, he's not the cessationist type saying like, just happened two seconds ago. He's more like, Okay, in the last two days, this is what happened. Uh, here's how we, you know, here's what it means for the U.S. Here's what it means for Ukraine. Here's what it means for Russia. And it's just been a very nice way to follow what's happening in the war, kind of summed up and and well thought out. Yeah, I like that because, I mean, especially here in the U.S., you know, it's really hard to trust what you're getting from the news outlets. And a lot of people just want straight up information. <laughs> you know, we don't need to, like the, the spin on it. And it seems like he's kind of a no spin guy and just kind of spitting out, you know, actual facts of where troops are at, where attacks are happening, things like that. So a uh, really cool resource and something that wasn't possible, I don't know, 10 years ago before YouTube, because what platform would this have lived on? Yeah, it would have been really hard. I mean, especially kind of long form content. I guess he could have written a, a column or something for a newspaper, but it's right. always it's, this is way better. Uh, and actually, Jake before the war used to be a finance, you know, guy. He, he actually his YouTube channel, if you go far enough back, was talking about investing and you know, index funds and all that stuff. So today's episode, we're really diving in about the economics or the money side of Ukraine's war, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, especially from an American's standpoint, because he's American, we're American. I think most of our listeners are probably American, but in general, we have a lot of, people have a lot of questions about how does this war actually affect us in the West? Yeah. So before we go on for too long, I think we should jump straight into the interview because I have a lot to ask you after. There's... A lot of interesting things that come up in this interview, and you guys are going to find out right now. So here's Johnny with Jake Bro on Invest Like a Boss. Hey, bosses, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. The show will be right back. Jake, really excited to have you on Invest Like a Boss. Thank you so much for having me, Johnny. Yeah, I'm sure we could talk for hours about you know the the state of the war in general, but for today's episode and really for this podcast, we want to really focus on the economics of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war itself. The the first question that I think almost every single person, whether they're pro Ukrainian or not, has been asking is kind of speaking from a you know just a consumer side, especially if you're American, it seems like prices for almost everything have been very high the last two years, whether it's rent or food costs, transport and everything. How has Russia's invasion of Ukraine actually affected that? Well, first thing with inflation, prices only go up. I mean, there's there's a very small category of products where over time the price can come down with mass production. But in, in general, average rates for rent across America only go up. And, you know, the cost of fuel, the cost of energy, uh, as the money supply expands, you know, with our modern form of capitalism, everything is always going to inflate. The Federal Reserve's target inflation rate is between zero and 2% every year. And that's 
that's baked into the numbers. I'll quick explain why that's so important. You don't want deflation because if your money becomes more valuable next year, then too many people would not spend their money. If people aren't spending their money, then things grind to a halt. <laughs> so by having positive inflation between zero and 2%, everyone knows that their money will become less valuable next year. That gives them an incentive to spend. Spending is how we propel economic activity. So the money supply will always expand. Inflation will always exist. It's, you know, It should be a low, reasonable number, barely noticeable year to year. But given the, the global pandemic with COVID, yeah, things got out of control and I think core inflation at some point was over 7%, but now it's down to 3.6, you know, meaning year over year. On average, about things are 3.6% more expensive than they were 12 months ago. But the Fed's done, in my opinion, a really good job bringing inflation down. But for people upset about prices, uh, there, there's no going back. It's, 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 it's a one-way one, one street. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, it's unfortunate, but kind of... The, the cost of things are they're going to be the way it is but it sounds like a lot of it you know people have kind of forgotten how how messed up the, the economy got during covid and this is kind of the result of the us printing money the last um, couple of years and you know they're not being that much output but how's has the russian invasion actually somehow changed things yeah so i think people's this is my opinion but i think people's opinion of what the economy should be like has been very distorted especially the last 30 years but the last 20 and 10 the the west the united states has really benefited from cheap labor in china and cheap resources coming out of russia with china opening up and the soviet union collapsing uh, this was the golden era for western economics in that we could have cheap labor to make our stuff and cheap raw materials. But given the economic successes of Russia and China's governments and their deliberate choices in authoritarianism, we can no longer rely on cheap commodity exports from Russia, you know, keeping inflation and keeping prices down for the entire world. And, and the era of cheap labor out of China is done, done. You know, China was able to keep robbing peasants from the countryside, bring them to cities, and those people were happy working factory jobs, uh, reasonably skilled labor for really low prices. But as more people in China enter the middle class, China is no longer the cheap destination for companies to, uh, you know, um, what's outsource jobs from the United States. So lots of Fortune 500 companies are currently reshoring. They're bringing jobs back to North America. A, a lot of companies are, are looking for labor in South America or Mexico. So how, how does this war affect inflation or, or the global economy? And if we can't cleanly do business with a competent Russia, yeah, everything's going to be more expensive. You know, every time oil and gas production goes down in Russia, that's going to affect uh, global prices for everyone because everybody needs energy to build or do anything in this world. Okay, definitely makes sense. Another thing I see a lot online a lot is people complaining, you know, you know that their tax dollars are going to to Ukraine. Has taxes actually gone up? No, taxes haven't gone up for anyone since 1993. <laughs> Everyone in every generation complains about taxes, but no American today would swap their current tax rates for taxes under Eisenhower in the 50s or taxes under Nixon in the 70s or taxes under Reagan in the 80s. <laughs> people don't people who complain about taxes being high don't 
understand like the history of taxes in America. We're, we're, we're paying historically low rates today. And when I tell people that, it just makes them more upset because everyone wants to pay lower taxes. I get that. But if we want to have uh, a military and we want to have you know a state department and, and a functioning judiciary, everyone needs to pay some taxes. Well, let's let's quickly talk about this uh, th- this like kind of young TikToker. She was she was saying there doesn't need to be wars ever. We don't need a military. Uh, our presidents should just be able to you know, talk their way out of out of conflicts and wars. And if they can't, we should just have a new president. Like, wh- why do we need a military? So the it's so hard to think about what life was like a hundred years ago. Everyone wants to complain and condemn what the United States has done in the post-World War II era. But the United States Navy, the United States military has kept the peace. (laughs) The only thing stopping for the last 80 years, the only thing stopping countries from repeating the cycle, the cycle of endless war, and that's the history of every corner of the world going back thousands of years. I'm I'm sorry if people don't acknowledge this fact, but when power is concentrated in, in a monarch or a dictator or you know, a ruling family, they always inevitably gravitate towards saying, well, what if I just attacked my neighbor, killed him and took his stuff? All wars are competitions over limited resources. And for people who have a lot, honestly, it's never enough. So the United States military under the Bretton Woods agreements uh, said, we are going to be the peace guarantors of the world. We're going to stop, you know, this endless cycle of wars because we just invented nuclear weapons and we can't have a major war between two industrial powers who are both nuclear nuclear capable. So for people, you know, the TikTok generation saying, well, war shouldn't be necessary. War is involuntary. If somebody invades you, I mean, I guess you could take, you know, the Buddhist Nepal reaction and, and, and not respond, not mobilize, not defend yourselves. But how did that turn out for the people of Nepal? For pacifists, it doesn't end well. And if the United States closed every overseas military base, if the United States Navy stopped patrolling the seas and, and guaranteeing you know, uh, commercial shipping lanes, that would be a, a complete breakdown of globalization. And the prices for everything would go up. And a lot of people would die. When you look at North Korea, when you look at Iran, when you look at what Russia is doing and what China wants to do, the only thing stopping all these dictators and authoritarian regimes from from invading their neighbors is is the threat of what does the United States do in response. I know people want to say we shouldn't be the police of the world. It's not our business. But at the same time, the United States gets dual criticism when there is conflict or war in the world and everyone's like, why isn't the United States doing something? Why is the United States doing more to help Ukraine? So it's it's criticism both ways. We can't win. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that you're you know, you are right, where if the US wasn't the world police, somebody would have the biggest stick. And I would The last know. eighty years yeah. have been the most peaceful period in human history. When you when you go, when you think about you know the Peloponnesian Wars and the Thirty Year Wars and like the Shogun you know the the Three Kingdoms era in China like history is really effing brutal like what the Mongols did was brutal <laughs> and it was every corner of the earth from the Mayans to the Aztecs to you know um, the high civilizations the, the you know the, I I don't I don't wish this was our history as as a species but it is. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, but you know, you are right. For thousands of years, 
war was the answer, and it doesn't seem like a human nature changes. Speaking of war, I think another kind of big complaint people have is how much money is going into to Ukraine. Is it and and this was an actual question from you know one of our listeners. Is it just the U.S. like wiring money to Ukraine? Like how does it work? So there's uh, you know there's different pools and there's different mechanisms, uh, but the majority of U.S. aid, military aid to Ukraine is us giving them stuff, high Mars launchers, a Patriot system, Gimler's rounds. And then we bill ourselves for that item to have it replaced. So if we send a hundred Gimler's rounds to Ukraine, well, how much would it cost to replace those rounds? Ordering a hundred Gimler's rounds from Lockheed Martin, we bill ourselves and then we place the order. And uh, Lockheed Martin by 2026 or 2027 will eventually replace those 100 Gimler's rounds on the books. But those, but those Gimler's rounds have a shelf life of you know a couple decades, and they're eventually going to be decommissioned and disposed of anyways. So the, the the cost wasn't what it cost to build it; it's to, the cost to replace it. So it's today's dollars, and uh, so that, that that's the majority of the money. The other money. Uh, is mostly given to EU institutions, and those EU institutions are are overseeing how it's being spent uh, in Ukraine. It's it's a pool of money for the Ukrainian military to buy stuff, basically from from the EU. Okay, so actually, one of the kind of points that you know some politicians have been making now is saying, okay, we will give money to Ukraine, but it needs to have some kind of oversight. Has there not been oversight so far? Yeah, that's yeah. bullshit. <laughs> No, there's plenty of oversight. Uh, you know, uh, audits uh, from the inspector general. Uh, there's no, there's no, nothing nefarious happening. There's, there's no evidence of corruption. All the documented corruption so far within the Ukrainian military has been their own domestic budgets. You know, overcharging for uniforms, making money disappear. Overcharging for meals, making that money disappear. But that's peanuts. You know, we're, we're talking about millions of dollars maybe being stolen. Those people should be found and held and, and honestly hanged for treason in, during wartime. But when you think about how much military aid has been given by the West, it's hundreds of billions. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, nobody's that good. You can't just make a billion dollars in military aid disappear. It's th- th- That kind of corruption isn't even possible. It's, it's so uh, you know silly to think about. So, and especially because it's not cash, it's mostly, you know, old weapons that they're, they're sending and, and those are getting... Well, even, even if cash does, you know, magically appear in an account and then they, like, it's all digital. Like, wh- where are they going to transfer it to? What Western bank is going to not ask questions? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, Ukraine is trying to change. I, I've had this conversation before about President Zelensky. I, I think President Zelensky wants to end and reform corruption, but it's it's the old Soviet system. And it's the system that the Russians prefer because that's how you buy people's loyalty to the authoritarian regime. Everybody is skimming. Everybody is stealing. Everybody is lying. That is the system that Ukraine had until about 2014. So when a new politician comes in, are you really going to arrest everyone in the governments for what what was business as normal, the standard that everyone had to participate in? In order to fit in, in order to not be purged, you know, because corruption defends itself. So I think Zelensky's doing his best. Uh, but yeah, there's some bad apples uh, still remaining in the government that 
Ukraine can't probably can't get rid of until this war is over. They need them. Yeah, and it is unfortunate, but you know, at the same time, people forget that Russia is the number one corrupt country in the world, and Ukraine is literally fighting to get rid of that Soviet mentality and that you know that Russian system. Yeah, I agree. That's what we're yeah. trying to help Ukraine to do. All right. So, what would actually happen if tomorrow, you know, the end of the year, the U.S. completely stops funding Ukraine? Ukraine would keep fighting. Why would they stop? Uh, I I think there's a, a a solid list of countries, you know, from Poland to the Baltics to the Scandinavian countries that are never going to stop supporting Ukraine militarily and financially. They don't have the resources that the United States has, but this war won't end because Russia doesn't want to end it. There's only one person that has any say in whether or not this war continues or ends, and that's Vladimir Putin. So for idiots in the West, delusional enough to think, well, let's have some negotiations, let's have some peace talks. For uh, Kremlinologists, people who watch the Kremlin, Putin has no intention of stopping this war before the 2024 elections. He wants to see Joe Biden lose, and then he wants to negotiate with whoever replaces Joe Biden. So for people saying we need a a freeze in the conflict, we need a ceasefire, Russia, I don't think would agree to that in the next 11 months anyways. So stopping, stopping military aid for Ukraine now is just going to lead to more Ukrainians dying. I mentioned this in my video yesterday, but the city of Zaporizhia is 700,000 people, 700,000 Ukrainian citizens. And Russia says that's a Russian city. They held a referendum and annexed a city that they've never controlled. So anybody foolish enough to talk about peace talks or negotiations, I want to ask them, well, what the heck happens to this city of 700,000 that Russia says is theirs when they've never even controlled it? Russia's not going to say that's not our city. Russia wants more. Russia wants Odessa. Russia wants Kharkiv. And they want uh, a connection to their forces in Transnistria. They're they're never going to stop until they get all of that, at least. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but they might pause. And I think Russia is kind of, you know, we associate Russia with playing chess. I think that Russia would happily pause for a few years, build up their forces, let the West completely forget about Ukraine, and then take those 700,000 people that they annexed, use them as cannon fodder, and then invade the next country, whether it's well, Moldova. Russia's, or- Russia's strategy for Zaporizhia would be to do maybe like one bombing a week, like once a week, just blow up a cafe or blow up a concert hall or blow up a a school or a hospital so that people just leave the city, you know, just depopulate it, make life so miserable there with these random terrorist attacks that people just give up and and eventually Russia doesn't care about the people. Russia doesn't even care about the city. Russia just wants the land. They want strategic depth and they want as much soil uh, as they can take. And decades from now, they will move in proper Russians loyal to the czar. That's how their empire has functioned for hundreds of years. You know, what's crazy to me is Americans in general, we really understand that terrorism is not okay. You know, it's been, what, 20, 30 years since the 9-11 bombings in New York, and every American, you know, still remembers it. Yet, somehow people can kind of turn a blind eye and say, oh, you know, these uh, these random bombings from, from Russia, it's, it's okay somehow. You know, it's justified. Well, people become desensitized. You know, I can tell from my views and my analytics that fewer people are paying attention to the war in Ukraine just because, you know, it's easy, it's easy for a couple days, a couple weeks, even a couple months to say, this is wrong. We need to help these people. 
we need to stop this. But after a year or two years, the situation hasn't improved. The situation hasn't changed. Your brain just kind of flips it off. You know, there's there's so much pain and suffering and misery in the world that we don't think about. <laughs> parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, you know, there's a war going on right now between Venezuela and their neighbor. Venezuela just invaded, honestly, I can't even, Guyana? I'm not sure if I know the name of this country, but if it's not... If it's not on CNN, like if it's not in front of our faces being loud, uh, it's really easy to tune out Con conflict zones. And that's sad. That's unfortunate. But I don't have a solution here. Well, so what would you say to Americans who feel their tax money should just stay within the U.S. borders and, and not be spent on you know, places they can't even find on well, a map? Well, if you're we live in a global society with global market chains, and if you're upset about prices going up, well, peace and stability is what keeps prices down. So when dictators attack and invade their neighbors, when cargo ships are, you know, like the Houthi in, in the Red Sea, are, are, you know, pirates are seizing cargo ships. Uh, yeah, that's going to cause everything to be more expensive. Uh, it's going to cause stuff to be delayed. So for, you, for, for the United States to say, well, let's only focus on our borders and inside our nation, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you want cheap energy and cheap manufactured goods uh, that all are, are are supported and fed by global supply chains and not care about what happens about around the rest of the globe. So the entire world, it's not just the United States, has a vested interest in global security. Now, there's plenty of conflict zones around the world where they're not part of any supply chains. They're not they're not contributing much to the global economy. That makes it easier to ignore. That's not moral. I'm I'm not justifying. I'm just stating the reality. So no, we can't let the Russians use their nuclear arsenal to threaten their neighbors. And Putin says the collapse of the Soviet Union was a mistake. We're going to undo that by invading and annexing the territory of 14 countries. The Russians have parts of Moldova. They have parts of Georgia. They've already taken Belarus, basically. No, they're never going to stop. They want they want their old empire back. And I, 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 there's no, there's no upside to that. There's only downsides. So the world needs to stick together, stop this now. And yeah, this is going to cost money, tax dollars. I'm sorry. But when the United States went to war, used to be taxes went up and we paid for it. And Disney pumped out patriotic cartoons of Donald Duck paying his taxes during World War II because it was the right thing to do and and it you know it, it's peace dividends you know pay today let's let's create a safer more stable world for our children for tomorrow what's wrong with that what would actually happen if the US these people who want to be isolationists got what they wanted we said you know what yeah we don't need uh, avocados from from Mexico we don't need to make our iPhones in, in China anymore let's just do everything within the US would it actually work and would we actually be safe I think the United States would be in a better position than most countries around the world given the geography of North America and we're protected by the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and all we have is Canada and Mexico geopolitical strategist Peter Peter Zion you know this is his whole thing he's written four books about this how the United States is a declining global superpower and eventually we might just say efforts and say our navy is only going to patrol and protect North and South America and the rest of the world's I'm sorry, but you're on your own. You you can figure it out. If that were to happen, I mean, it'd, it'd be World War III in the rest of the world. You know, the world the world is very chaotic, and 
there's just a lot of weapons that are really good at killing people. You know, we see the rise of drone warfare. Can we survive just North and South America? Yes. Would our standard of living be as good as it is today? I, I think no. Uh, I, I think we would see some serious declines. I mean, we, we've got the food, we've got the energy. Those are the two most important inputs. But is your 401k going to survive? Is the stock market going to keep going up? Probably not. Yeah, definitely something to think about. What about Russia? They've been, you know, praising that they can just make everything in house that they don't need anyone else. They're lying. <laughs> yeah, like has Russia's economy actually? It seems like they should have collapsed, you know, months ago. Like, what's going on so, there? So once again, you know, you think about the four horsemen, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Russia has a surplus of food production as long as they can keep getting fertilizer and harvesting food every year. I mean, they shouldn't be experiencing famine. And Russia's got all the uh, rock commodity and oil and gas inputs to be energy independent. So it, it's really hard to defeat a nation that is food secure and energy secure. Uh, the reason why, you know, when you think about what really drove World War II and Japan and Germany were rising industrial powers that did not have food security and energy security. Germany wanted to expand into Poland and Ukraine in order to uh, become more food secure for their growing population. They wanted to expand into the Caucasus uh, and, the, and, and the Urals in order to get energy. And the same is true for Japan. They expanded into Manchuria in order to be food secure. And they expanded into Indonesia to get their oil and gas fields. And we defeated them. The, you know, the allies defeated the access powers because eventually they ran out of food and energy. That's going to starve your people and, and, and grind your military to a halt. So yes, uh, Russia is a tuck, tough egg to crack because of their uh, energy and food resources, but the Russians are incompetent. They do have terrible geography. Given the landmass, it's just really hard to move stuff around, transport stuff. Their people uh, are not the best workers in the world. They're not the most educated. Most people with valuable skills in Russia just leave Russia. I'm sure this conversation has been had in the Kremlin, but they say, why do we bother educating our people when they just move to London or, or, or Berlin as soon as they can? But uh, the positive here is if any nation was going to collapse during wartime, it's the Russians. They've, they've already done it twice in the last century, 1917 and, and 1992. So for people saying that, that Russia is never going to collapse, my response to that is, well, based on historical precedents, they're the most likely country to collapse from incompetence, from corruption, from just being stupid on the battlefield, which is pretty much their signature move. Speaking of kind of the the Russian you know economic system, the ruble you know is now historically low. It's you know hundred hundred rubles of the dollar. But Russia's kind of claim you know or maybe when Putin said it said you know it doesn't matter. We're not buying things in dollars. We're buying things in rubles. Is that just a, a cop out or how does that actually how does how does this affect the everyday citizen of, of Russia? The triple digit mark of one hundred rubles per dollar. Well, well, first of all, that's a terrible exchange rate. When you think about where it was pre 2014, but let, let, let's ignore that. The central bank of Russia is using their foreign currency reserves to buy rubles. One, the ruble is not an internationally exchanged currency. Nobody really transact, 
transacts in it unless they absolutely have to. I, I, I don't think there's many governments around the world holding foreign currency reserves or rubles. No, nobody wants to do that. So it's Russia buying their own currency. Pre-2000, you know, pre-invasion of last February, Russia had about 600 billion US dollars saved up in foreign currency reserves. Japanese yen, Chinese yuan, euros, dollars, half of that was frozen because Putin never told his economic advisors that he was going to invade Ukraine. Uh, but the remaining 300 billion that Russia has, we don't know what the current status of that is, but I I guarantee you they're using their 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 Chinese yuan and their euros to buy their own currency to keep it under triple digits. Now that that's a stupid plan because they're just setting their own currency on fire. But I think Putin is committed to this strategy until his re-election in March, and then he's going to stop. He's going to stop wasting his money buying rubles, and the rubles just going to start going parabolic. So when that happens, what would actually happen to the Russian economy? Well, uh, Russia is globally integrated. They're part of the global supply chains, and if they want to get bananas from Brazil, they need to pay for them. And uh, Brazil is not going to want rubles. So when nobody wants to touch your currency because they know it's going to be worth less tomorrow, it gets harder and harder to buy stuff. And those costs are going to be passed on to ordinary Russians when they go to the supermarket. That's, that's the number one complaint of Russians today is how expensive grocery shopping is because that's really all they do. There is a, a very small middle class remaining in Russia, but more and more people are falling into poverty and We've seen these videos of pensioners saying that the amount they get for their pension from the government doesn't doesn't co- cover anything really anymore, and it's it's just going to get worse. All right. Well, let's uh, see when that day actually happens. I, I know R- Russian kind of civilians have been kind of skating around this uh, by you know converting their rubles into crypto uh, and then you know living in other countries. Do you think that's kind of um just kind of like a small, you know, a topic that that's not even worth discussing. Yeah, or? I think that's a very small, a small number of people. Like as a percentage of the Russian population, what percent are using crypto to preserve their, you know, their wealth? That's uh, got to be less than one percent. Okay, makes sense. So one kind of a big thing that I hear a lot is, and people make it sound like a bad thing, but I can't really figure this out. You know, people say. You know, BlackRock and other financial firms have been, you know, in, you know, doing talks of reconstructing Ukraine after the war. You know, they're, you know, they're just these greedy, you know, companies who, who, you know, are happy the war is happening. But like, what, like, what would you have to say about that? Is it, are they good? Are they bad? Are they evil? Are they just are they the purpose, rebuilding? The purpose of a publicly traded company is to generate a profit for their shareholders, the owners of the company. So that that's capitalism. <laughs> if you don't like, that's what motivates people. Well, then, I mean, that's where we got today. That's why we have internets and that's why we have smartphones and, and, and modern medicine is because someone at some points in the last hundred years or, or 500 years was trying to better themselves financially uh, in exchange for doing good work or uh, inventing something amazing for the world. You know, you and I are able to have this Zoom conversation right now because somebody at Zoom wanted to make a lot of money. If there's a better economic system that can be demonstrated to work, uh, we can switch over to that. But at the moment, capitalism is the best that humanity has come up with. Communism didn't really work any anywhere it was tried. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize also that all almost like almost all of us are somehow invested in these big companies, whether it's BlackRock or Vanguard. If we have a four hundred one k or a retirement fund, I don't, you know. I don't understand because I, I think I know what you're referring to. This Joe Rogan clip in which they're talking about how BlackRock secretly controls the world. BlackRock has assets under management, so anybody who uh, puts their money. Yeah, a 401k, an IRA, uh, the government thrift savings plan, TSP, that's the, the government's retirement accounts. Whenever they put money in their accounts, BlackRock then uh, buys ETFs or individual stocks, mutual funds on their behalf. BlackRock is the holder, but that's not their money. It belongs to the individual account holders. So when you look at the size of BlackRock and their assets under management, that's just people's retirement funds. That's not BlackRock's money, but somebody has to be uh, the name holder you know, on, on these shares of Apple and shares of Microsoft that goes into these ETFs and mutual funds. So yes, BlackRock executives and Vanguard and Fidelity and Schwab, they all have seats on the boards of these big companies. And I think they try to be uh, good stewards because they're, they're representing their customers, people who have accounts with their, their, their firms. I, there's no conspiracy here. Anybody that wants to tell you, um, you know, BlackRock is, is some evil corporation that's secretly controlling the world. Well, those people are probably broke and they don't have a brokerage account and they, they don't understand <laughs> how the stock market or, or modern capitalism works. Because you know somebody has to hold those shares, and somebody has to represent the boards of these companies. And you know, if if you don't like the decisions that BlackRock makes, you don't have to be a customer at BlackRock. You can move your money somewhere else. Well, so Jake, the, the last kind of question I have for you is: Is it even bad for you know? Let's I don't want to call them the, the, the broke people, but you know, the average American, maybe ones that don't have you know, lots of money to invest. Is it actually even bad for, you know, these big companies or the military industrial complex to get all all this investment from the US government? You know, does it trickle down to us? Does it does it actually hurt kind of the you know the working man? So when I made that comment about, you know, broke people, fear comes from a place of not understanding. It's really easy to scare people when they don't understand how things work. And this is incredibly unfortunate in the American education system. We don't teach people what is a stock, what is a bond. <laughs> we don't teach people financial literacy. So when people like Joe Rogan have uh, scary commentators on saying that BlackRock secretly rules the world, yeah, it's very easy to to get people to latch onto that message and then repeat it. Uh, you know, spread it across social media like a virus. But I, I can take anyone, doesn't matter their education level. And if I sat down with them for 20 or 30 minutes, I could explain to them how capital markets work, how public equity works. And and it's all legit. Like there's no, there's no shadow cabal of lizard people secretly ruling the world. This, 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 this comes from not understanding how capitalism actually works. So your question think, of, go for it. Yeah. Actually, I I just looked it up. Do you happen to know what is the minimum investment for for someone to actually invest in BlackRock? What well, would you guess? So, I mean, if you Google that, you're, you're talking about a private wealth management accounts. But BlackRock owns iShares, and anyone can buy an iShares ETF for probably as low as one dollar on Robinhood. And anybody in the government you know, military or post office or whatever, they have the TSP, the Thrift Savings Plan, BlackRock 
manages all that and you can contribute any amount you want to your your for your government 401k so but but you're you're probably googled what is the minimum investment for a private wealth management account and it, i mean it's it's probably at least like what like $20,000 or something ridiculous well you know which actually isn't even you know that high for you know retirement account, but actually I, I looked the, the first thing that popped up actually was just their kind of normal account uh, for for non retirement account, and it's it's a thousand bucks, you know, and you know all these people listen to Joe Rogan or you know these other conspiracy you know theorists, you know they're saying oh yeah you know back you know BlackRock's this you know ultra powerful company, you know if they really believe that why not just invest in them and, and take a you know be a part of it? Uh, well, the services they offer is the same as you know Fidelity and Schwab and Vanguard and Morgan Stanley and I don't honestly see much of a difference between any of them. I think I think Robinhood uh, the last 5 or 6 years has done a lot of good because they've gotten people thinking about investing. Now Robinhood gamified buying and selling stocks. Uh, their zero commission trades forced all the other big brokerages to drop all their trade commissions and uh, so now anybody can, you know, get on their brokerage account or their IRA and buy and sell stocks, which uh, might not be a good thing, but if you're educating yourself and you're learning and you find the right information, yeah, I I I believe it's beneficial in the long run for people. Yeah, you can see that. Your question about trickle down for military spending. Military spending generates economic activity. A, a lot of US military bases, for example, are located in very remote areas. For four years, when I was serving in the Air Force, I was stationed at Minot, North Dakota. And Minot, North Dakota is pretty remote, but they have two wings they have the missile wing and they have the bomber wing. You know, there's thousands of people stationed there. And that's a government salary paying all of those Air Force personnel and those people pump gas and go to restaurants and go to movie theaters and they're generating economic activity for that city, a city of about like 60,000 people or 55,000. And if the US were to close the close Minot Air Force Base, that, that base just went away. Yeah, I think that city would die because there's not a lot else. There's oil fields now. It's North Dakota, but uh, there's not else a lot going on up there aside from farm fields for like sunflower seeds and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But all, all, all defense jobs, if you spend a dollar here in the United States on a, on a good government job, what does it produce in local economic activity? It's probably like a dollar twenty-five. Mm. If, if, if you had to choose between spending a million dollars on the defense industry versus a million dollars on tax cuts for the richest one percent, which do you think generates more economic economic activity? Uh, so I, I I know that I know there's an ethical question here. People are very upset with the U.S. military in response to the Iraq War and the Afghan War, and I'm not pardoning or excusing the decisions made by George Bush and Dick Cheney. I, I think they're war criminals, and I think they lied about WMD. But I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and the nuclear blackmail going on proves more than anything that yeah, the United States needs a military and. Maybe we haven't been doing enough to prepare for what's coming as far as this new axis forming of, of China, Iran, and Russia, North Korea. It's it's pretty scary stuff when you think about it in, in the grand scheme. Yeah. I mean, uh, 100%. I mean, I think we, as Americans, we're a little bit comfortable uh, not being attacked. <laughs> There's a genuine debate that should be had of tax dollars spent on education versus tax dollars spent on infrastructure versus uh, maybe healthcare versus the military, which is the best for 
ordinary Americans and taxpayers. Uh, I'm not arguing that tax dollars spent on the military, uh, you know, money going to General Dynamics or, or, or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin is the best use of tax dollars, but it absolutely generates a positive economic impact greater than the dollar the dollar used to, to, to spend it here in the United States. If we just keep giving tax cuts to the rich, they just keep offshoring their money. They hide it. Uh, they spend it abroad. So I would rather see you know increased spending here in the United States, American jobs, economic activity, tax revenue, than more tax cuts for the rich, which always seems to happen. You know when a certain party controls all the Congress and the White House. Yeah, you know it actually reminds me of the argument um, a few years ago. People said more social media started posting this thing of. You know, we're wasting $25 billion a year, you know, through NASA, giving money to NASA. And someone replied saying, you know, it's not like NASA is just burning this money in our space. <laughs> you know, this is going back to our economy. I, you know, I, when I was in the Air Force, you know, I had a, I, I had a uh, much more negative opinion of the military and these government, we call them GS jobs, government service jobs uh, prior to serving. But spending six years in the Air Force and interacting with so many of these people that work for the Department of Defense, work on, on military bases. I mean, these are these are really good jobs and anyone can apply for them. You, you're going to get health care. You're going to get, you know, 401k contributions, the, the government TSP. Often, you know, you're only working sometimes four days a week, uh, really generous with uh, federal holidays. And there's base holidays and it's a safe working environment because there's federal laws there's there's a there's a government union protecting all these people well, depends if they're gs or an independent contractor but anyone can apply for these jobs and i've met so many uh military families and that's something that shocked me most about serving in the military is that most people came from a military family they were second third fourth generation military their sisters or their parents or their cousins are all in the military and they, they join for the benefits and and for uh, the good treatment. I'll give you an example. When I was waiting for my security clearance, when I was stationed at Vandenberg, I was temporarily placed in the, uh, in, in the base legal office. And all the lawyers in the Air Force base legal office at Vandenberg were women because they all had quit their jobs at these... Uh, private law firms because they just couldn't stand how they were treated uh, mm. in the profession. But being a JAG, being a lawyer in the military, nobody sexually harasses you. You're not expected to, you know, have meetings with clients in strip clubs and, you know, be treated like an inferior just because of your gender. So I, I, I support the United States military's commitments to equality and fairness and, and and treating people with respect, which is something that's harder to enforce in the private sector. But for people critical of the defense industry, I just don't think they know anyone working for these companies and and, and they're good people and they're hardworking people and they believe in their mission. Yeah. And, so, and something you, you know, your point you brought up earlier was if you, know, you think that the US is spending too much money on national defense and not enough money on you know, education or, or or another category. That's that's completely fine. And I would actually, you know, just, you know, push people and say it. You know, use your use your vote and say, you know what? Yeah, we should. You know, we should allocate more um, of our our U.S. government, you know, budget towards education and maybe less towards national defense. But as you mentioned, 
kind of earlier in this uh, in this uh, conversation, that money is already allocated. And if we're taking you know the five or ten percent of that and putting it towards Ukraine, it's a, a net benefit to to Americans. I've been watching a lot of Perun podcasts. Uh, this Australian guy who talks about defense economics and Perun is fantastic. I love his channel, but he's done such an effective job because he makes one video a week and he's been doing this since the war started, explaining how when it comes to defense economics, it's use it or lose it. There's so many things in the United States military, we have to just keep producing ships and planes and tanks, because if we stop production, we can't get it back very fast in the event of a crisis. And that institutional knowledge just kind of evaporates, like it disappears. My job in the Air Force is I was a nuclear missile operations officer on the Minuteman Three intercontinental ballistic missile system. And, and all these silos were built in the 60s and early 70s. And they've been sitting there for 50 years with nobody producing new parts, nobody. I mean, I mean there, there's subtle modifications that have been made, but more or less, it's the same system. And when I was doing my job, if something broke, like there's nobody making new parts, there's nobody, uh, e even the people that originally worked on it or designed it, you know, that was 50 years ago, many of them have passed away. So it's, it's hard to... Uh, keep this institutional knowledge and this capability, w w which gives the United States an advantage over other countries around the world that don't do what we do and, and have this permanent military presence uh, all over the world. But this is a huge economic benefit to the United States because everyone now wants to buy our weapons. <laughs> because what of Russia has done, this is the greatest commercial promotional campaign ever for the US defense industry. Poland bought, you know, like 600 HIMARS launchers and everyone around the world uh, wants Patriot air defense systems, like the backlog of borders coming from Gulf states and, 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 and countries across Europe. Like uh, this is a huge economic advantage for the United States that we have this capability. We have this, this sector. Um, and once again, this is foreign money not tax dollars, foreign money coming to the United States, paying jobs, uh, paying taxes, and, and generating economic activity, which is a huge benefit. Yeah, and almost the exact opposite could be said for Russia's performance with their military hardware. Nobody wants to buy stuff from Russia now. It performs terrible. Russia's been exposed. Well, definitely sounds like we America has a, a bright future economically, and um, you know Russia has kind of the opposite. So, Jake, uh, that's always good news to hear. Great talking to you. I uh, really appreciate all the work you do showing what's going on in Ukraine, but also for coming on Invest Like a Boss. Yeah, and thank you for uh, coming on my podcast as well, Johnny. Definitely. You're welcome. Hey, bosses, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. The show will be right back. All right, I have a laundry list of notes, Johnny. Let's start at the top. <laughs> wow. Okay. I was listening yeah, last night. You messaged night. me yesterday. Yeah, I was. Yeah, you were saying like this is going to be an interesting episode. Um, I have a lot of questions for you. Yeah, I was really excited to hear it. Um, some of the things he brought up really ticked in my head, and I had to write it down on paper. So first off, we kicked off with inflation and how the war kind of really set inflation on fire in the U.S. and obviously across the world. He brought up something that I never really thought about. He said inflation gives incentive to spend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So without inflation people wouldn't be spending as much money. And I guess I never thought of it that way. I don't know. Have you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the opposite of it is like a high savings interest rate. I mean, the the, the, the only reason why interest rates are growing and you can get, you know, four or 5% just putting your money in a bank is because the government's trying to slow down spending. They just want people to park their money in a savings account and not buy stuff. 
Yeah. So if you think about it, like inflation is kind of the backbone of our economy as much as we want to complain about it. It actually helps our economy grow as well because you're spending more money to get the same items. And it, you know, in fact, the numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger and inflation is just going to keep happening. It needs to happen for our economy to grow. Yeah. And, you know, I think the kind of the whole system's kind of made so in the US at least that we are a consumer nation and has pros and cons. You know, it, it, we want people to spend normally and we want money to move around. I, I don't think, you know, inflation's necessarily a bad thing. It's just uh, people have to realize it is a real thing. So whenever we have a few years of what you call stagnation or just very, very low uh, or, you know, close to 0% in inflation, it's not necessarily a good thing. I think we, we we hope for that. We hope for the 99 cent McDonald's menu to remain around forever. But first off, it's not realistic. And second, it shouldn't be that way. And some of the reasons we were able to achieve that, which were brought up in your interview too, was, you know, we had cheap labor from China. Um, we got cheap resources from Russia. And the way things are looking now, those are about to be, you know, out the window or a lot less than they were with, you know, China supporting Russia. And obviously Russia is a problem for not just the US, but basically half of the world. Where does America look next? Because I think that's like the corporation's goal is to find the cheapest labor all over the place. Um, Mexico is one resource. Speaking of a callback to a previous episode, I ordered a Ford Maverick truck. I just finally got a build date. It's being built in nice. Mexico. So <laughs> your uh, yeah. F- American Ford truck is being built in Mexico and they're not the only ones doing that. A lot of places are. So do you think America kind of looks to Mexico, Latin America and we move away from Asia? I don't think we move away completely, but we have been diversified the last few years. I mean, even, you know, Apple used to be 100% made in China, and now it's it's getting split up with a couple of different countries. I, I, can't, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but I mean, everything is getting split up now where we don't want to be 100% reliant on any one country. And the thing is, cheap labor days or the cheap, you know, XYZ days, I think they're nice to have because it feels like you're getting a good deal, but... It's not very, it shouldn't be that way. So for example, food costs, uh, I remember someone saying this, you know, a long time ago, you know, when we were complaining, saying, why is this so much cheaper to buy junk food than it is to buy like real food? Right. Someone said, it's not that real food's expensive. It's just that junk food is artificially cheap. And when we think of it that way, and we're like, you know what? Yeah, maybe us buying, you know, this like hyper marketed, you know, high food, close corn syrup, you know, crap that's just like made with these terrible ingredients that they buy in bulk and they kind of just push, you know, they just market towards Walmart consumers, nine and you know, store consumers. Like, yeah, it's cheap, but maybe the ear of corn or the avocado or the dozen eggs or the grass fed beef, like maybe it's not actually expensive. Maybe that's just what food should cost. Yeah, I think so too. And I was kind of on a kick for a while to like not buy anything from China. And I tried to do that. It's that's hard. Damn near impossible. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, I, I'll give you a good example right now. Is like anyone who's buying clothes from like Sheen, like clothes shouldn't be that cheap. Like yeah. you shouldn't, nothing should cost $5. <laughs> it's addictive though. It's kind of like, it's, it's like that cheap food, which is addictive and we, we get sucked on it. And it's like, oh, I can buy a t-shirt for a hundred dollars or for $7. I'm going to take the $7 one because it looks the same. Yeah. And you kind of, you don't really think about the consequences of like how these, you know, workers are treated. And it's kind of the um, American ignorance, I guess, uh, of where we get our products from. Yeah. I mean, it, it ties in everything. I mean, for example, Americans love gas guts in their cars. So we love big cars. And the reason why we can afford to drive it is because we have some of the cheapest gas in the whole world, you know, with exception of a few dictatorships that produce gas, you know, oil and gas, and they just kind of pass along those savings to their 
their peasants just to like <laughs> just keep them happy you know but just like just look at all of europe you know uh we have the cheapest gas and it's unrealistic to keep it that way if we also want to be you know self-sufficient and we don't have to you know rely on uh, making deals with these oil producing countries that could potentially backstab us like Russia or any of these Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, that's a good point. And speaking of making deals, he brought up something that I was interested in that I think I, I asked you to ask him was, how do the funds from the US get to Ukraine? And one thing I didn't think about it was, he said, you know, let's say when it, in terms of weaponry, if Ukraine is getting, I don't know, name whatever it is, a Patriot missile, whatever it may be. It's just the U.S. going to the the clearance section of our warehouse and going, what what is about to expire and what can we give them because we want to get the new stuff. So I actually I I kind of like that. I mean I don't support the fact that we have to send weapons and kill people and everything, but the fact that it's it's kind of efficient for us to give them this stuff. Yeah, here's a really good analogy, right? Let's say that you know someone. All right, I'm, maybe you could even think of someone in your mind, someone who's you know uh, not that well off. Let's say you know they have no transport, and they need to get to work. So right now they're like, you know, they're taking the bus, takes them an hour. They have a broken down car, it's a piece of crap. They just need some way to get to work. Mm -hmm. And I say to this guy, I say, hey, I have a 2008 Porsche Cayenne <laughs> that I'm willing to give to you for free. You can have it because I know you need it, and I know you deserve it. You know, what happened to you and your situation sucks. Uh, it wasn't your fault that, you know, your wife cheated on you, divorced you, took the house and the car, and now you're taking the bus and living in Riverside. It's a terrible situation. Take my Porsche. You can have it. No strings attached. While on my side, I now get to have the funds for a brand new Porsche Cayenne 2024 <laughs> with all the late, you know, the latest, you know, technology. And I can say, well, for me to replace this Porsche Cayenne, you can't just give me $12,000. You have to give me $140,000 to replace it. That's kind of just the, the way it works right now. It's we're, we're taking that money from the budget and we're saying, all right, let, let's give these, you know, Patriot systems or these tanks to Ukraine that are going to expire anyways. That's going to cost us money to maintain or to have to even scrap. They'll be happy with it. They'll use it. They'll use it right now. They're not going to let it sit around for five years and let it expire. And meanwhile, we get the money to buy the latest and greatest. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy because we can't just go to another store and pick up a used missile. You know, we got to make them new. This is just beneficial for like Lockheed Martin and all these weaponry stocks, which I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't get in when all these um when Russia first attacked because those stocks are up insane amounts of money since 2022. You know, I thought about the exact same thing and I actually was going to buy some, but then I just did some research and I checked if my Vanguard funds already have it and they, they do. Nice. Do you know the date that um the invasion started? It was like February 2022? Yeah, February right? 24th, 2022. That'll be ingrained in my mind forever. Okay. So the day before Lockheed Martin stock was 386 a share. Today it's 449. So it's mm -hmm. up, you know, a good 20% probably since war broke out. Yeah. I mean, and well deserved too. I mean, I'm sure they're hiring a lot more people. I'm sure they're creating more, you know, they're buying more warehouse space. I'm sure they're they're buying more raw materials. I'm sure they're shipping more stuff. So they're creating a lot more money in the economy. They're creating a lot more jobs. They're you know creating just a lot more wealth for the U.S. So let's talk about some things that I kind of disagree with Jake on. He says that it's really hard to make this money kind of disappear. He said you can't make a billion dollars disappear when the U.S. is very uh, horrible at spending money, and especially when it comes to military. At one point, 
we had lost a trillion dollars. That's with a T. The U.S. just said, I don't know. We can't find it. This money's gone. So I don't ever trust the government to appropriate funds where they're supposed to go. I think he's a little naive in that sense that, you know, this money is actually getting spent where it's supposed to be spent because we can't even trust the U.S. government to do that. And honestly, if we can't trust the U.S. government, I really can't trust the Ukrainian government either. Yeah, I mean, that's a very fair point. There's always going to be some kind of leakage. But in general, I think I don't know what the percentage, but I think something like 90% of the, the the money, you know, like when you hear, you know, 800 million was given to Ukraine, 777 million of that was in actual used stuff. Like physical so goods. So like used okay. physical missiles, physical crap, you know? The other 33 million, you know, that goes to like, first all, you got to ship it there, you got to maintain it, you got to do all that stuff. Yeah, you know, who knows, right? Like there, there can always be someone make trying to make a little bit extra here and there, but it's such a small percentage. It, it's less than 1%. That's going to happen regardless if you're selling to Alaska, if you're selling to Florida, if you're selling to Texas, or you're selling to to, to England. You know, like it'll just it'll happen. So I don't want to say that there's zero corruption, but people in Ukraine they understand how vital and important this stuff is, and also there are you know actual there's, there's staff from the U.S. Like the, Ukraine actually asked for it in the beginning. They said when you send this stuff, please send your guys here too to monitor where it's going because we like we, like first off we want we want the oversight. And we want more stuff. So we want, you know, you guys to know where it's going. I think when it comes to like weaponry and things, though, too, like we had to have people there to just show them how to use it, too. Right. Because a lot of the stuff is exclusive to the U.S. military that uh, I think we're borrowing to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can't just (laughs) hit a button and say, shoot it. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think it's a non-issue. I think when it comes to talking about corruption, it's a it's a propaganda talking point by by Russia saying Ukraine has corruption, therefore we should just not give anything to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia is literally the most corrupt country in the world. So for every dollar that gets you know misspent in the U.S. or in Ukraine, ten times or a hundred times that much is being misspent in Russia. Yeah, I believe that. One thing you didn't ask that I just thought about now is I remember I don't know was it like like six months ago there was there was a bunch of hubbub about the missiles we were sending. I don't I don't know if it was the Patriot missiles or another type of missile. Do you know offhand what the rules are for like, obviously we're not allowed to send Ukraine a nuclear missile, but is, is there like some kind of rules of engagement of like certain weapons that are allowed and aren't allowed for Ukraine to have without committing an act of war against Russia, I guess? I never understood that. It's like, we're technically not at war with Russia, but we can just give them all our stuff and say, you go play war. When, <laughs> if, if you are another country, wouldn't you think, well, I'm basically fighting them as well i mean well from russia's side they are saying that they're fighting they're fighting the u.s actually from the kind of the russian talking points they're saying we've been fighting nato and america for two years and you know like they can't you know they can't defeat us you know america's weak nato's weak and it's almost laughable because if the u.s and or nato really was started a war against russia russia would get destroyed because russia could barely defeat Ukraine, you know, that's what with, I was just thinking, because it's like, yeah. imagine the US going to war with Ukraine, it, it would be laughable, honestly. And that's why I think Russia yeah. is a lot weaker than they pretend to be. Yeah. So but as far as like supplying, you know, I think the actual like rules of war is besides, you know, the nuclear agreements, I think that's that's a separate thing. But I think you, in general, like you can sell, you know, you can sell military weapons and, and military equipment to any country that's not sanctioned. And it was actually America that said, OK, we're not going to send long range missiles just because we don't want Ukraine to get mad at Russia and say, you know what? You bombed Kiev. Now we're going to bomb Moscow. <laughs> 
and that would be a disaster. That can, <laughs> yeah, that that can escalate the situation. So that's why the U.S. has been holding back on sending things, uh, um, especially long-range missiles. But there's kind of they're slowly saying, all right, well, you know what? Let's let's give them something a little bit longer so they can, you know, they can hit the occupied territories, or you know, let's give them something a little bit longer now so they can hit, you know, the, the uh, Russian ships that are parked in the in the Black Sea, like you know, a hundred miles away or wherever it is. Gotcha. So. When it comes to the political side, I wanted to go back and listen to it again because I don't remember exactly what Jake said. But I have a note here that he implied that Putin would want Biden to lose in 2024. And I don't know why he like why Putin would want that, because obviously he attacked Ukraine under Biden and nothing really happened. So I don't know why anything would change, especially if Biden is running against Trump. I think Trump is a huge wild card where he's unpredictable. And that's why I think Russia was gearing up for this attack long before Biden was even in office. And I think he actually decided to wait until Biden was in office to do it. So I don't know if if your thoughts on that, like, do you think Putin has a preference as to who's president or does it just not even matter? No, he definitely has a preference. I mean, and all governments will have a preference on who wins the next election and, and, you know, any country that potentially can have have a uh, either not allyship with or a rivalship with. So I think that actually I don't, I don't know why Putin waited until you know, the Biden years and he didn't attack earlier. That that probably had nothing to do with who was who was president. He also didn't know how Biden was going to respond either. He probably he probably assumed Biden would do nothing because when they took Crimea in 2014, the U.S. did nothing. Because yeah, you know? he was he was the vice president under Obama, and I I think he probably thought his foreign policy would be very similar to Obama's. Yeah. So turns out Biden has Biden has done a lot. You know, he he hasn't he hasn't sent in like U.S. troops, but aside from that, he's basically done everything, you know, he can uh, within his power to to help Ukraine win, or at least help uh, Russia not win. So Putin definitely doesn't want Biden in office. He thinks that if he has Trump in office, he could just make a deal with Trump and say, "All right, we'll do some kind of economic trade deal where." America will get cheap gas or you know cheap whatever, and then you have to tell you know Ukraine we're going to stop supporting you unless you give up you know these territories. I'm pretty sure Trump would happily take the deal and say, "Look, I got this done in 24 hours." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I think if he does get reelected, that he he would have to move quick on something, and maybe yeah, that I guess that could potentially happen. But I don't know if anything yeah. like with any deal that had Ukraine losing land, I think would be a horrible look for Trump. No, Trump would spin it like. Look, I, I made I made them this deal. It's a fair deal, and you know if, if Ukraine doesn't want to take it, that that's on Ukraine. But you know, but we, we, you know, America first. We're not going to send any more money there. You know, that's the deal. We're done. Yeah, I, I can see that happening. Yeah. Well, where do we go from here? Is Jake still in Ukraine? I think I saw some videos and he was in Vegas, but I don't know if he if he lives in Ukraine or no, no. So so Jake lives in in Vegas. Uh, he hasn't been to Ukraine, but he he follows. He follows the war, you know, from whatever information is available online. Actually, I asked him uh, if he wanted to come to Ukraine, and he says he does, but he wouldn't be able to take that much time off and, and you know, without missing uh, videos because it, it, it's basically a full time job. To well, you can YouTube from updates. Ukraine. What's can he? <laughs> yeah, but like you know, the the travel day yeah. and then the uh, you know once you hear, you're not going to like sit at home researching all day, right? Because I'm I'm pretty sure what his schedule is. He spends like a full day reading, you know, uh, the updates and then kind of diving deep in it. And then the next day he films and edits. So it's basically a full time job where if he spent a few travel days to get to Ukraine and then he was like sightseeing, going out and doing stuff, he would probably miss a week or two. And he doesn't want to do that. Oh, slave to that YouTube algorithm. Well, it seems yeah. like it's worked out for him. He's over 
400,000 subscribers, which is huge. Yeah. And yeah. um, I feel like he's got to be making a pretty good amount of money. I mean, not to blow up your spot, Johnny, but you've shown me your YouTube <laughs> earnings and he has a few more followers than you. So I got to assume he's doing pretty well. Yeah. And he has a lot more views than me. So he's definitely doing much better than me financially. Has has he kind of revealed where he's getting this information from? Because I'm kind of curious. I don't know what sites to trust when it comes to news. So I don't know. Obviously, he's found something that he thinks he can trust. I mean, I think he, he follows kind of everything. He, I think his kind of go-to point is Twitter. But then from there, it branches off to you know, a whole list of different different places, different sources. His his information has always been spot on. So I think what I like about him, he doesn't try to break news. He likes he likes to sit on it for 24 hours and think about it and see how it unfolds. You know, like I like that because every time something happens here, it's wrong because people want to be first. They want to put everything out yeah. there first. There was Something the other day, there was a, a car that was at the U.S.-Canada border that like exploded. Mm. And it had come out right away that it was a terrorist attack. Someone started a car bomb. And then like 24 hours later, it's the guy had like a heart attack or something. And the car just sped itself through the border and blew up. It was like nothing to do with a terrorist attack at all. The guy was going to a KISS concert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, so, I mean, the story completely that, changes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that, that's what that's actually exactly kind of the style that, that Jake does, where he'll say, so, you know, 24 hours ago, we had you know this explosion. At first, people were thinking this. Turns out it was this. I think that's actually really smart on his part. And it makes him more kind of trustworthy and probably why he's done so well. So if you want to check out more about Jake, uh, we will put a link to his channel. It's just at uh, Jake Bro, uh, B-R-O-E on YouTube. And you can find all the links in our notes as well. Yeah. And while you're on YouTube subscribing, make sure you check out Petro Electric and Johnny FD. I'm finally monetized. I haven't got a check yet. Wow. But <laughs> We'll see how many pennies I get from YouTube. <laughs> well, once you uh, once you view that Cybertruck, <laughs> I'm sure you do good. I haven't seen one yet. I mean, the neighborhood I'm in is definitely got a lot of Cybertruck orders. I'm sure I'll see one within the next week or two. Yeah. Oh, God. It'll be <laughs> some 11-year-old boy driving it. <laughs> <laughs> and while you're online, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash boss or investlikeaboss.com. Click become a Patreon. Johnny and I just... Did our little uh, intro routine that was very much not worthy of a podcast, but we put it on the Patreon if you guys want to check that out. Also, a ton of content on there. Sam just got a stem cell injection. I, I got to find yeah. out about that. What I don't know. There's so much. There's a lot of stuff on Patreon. It's it's very cool. It starts at just $5 a month. You guys should check it out. Yeah, we got some exclusives. And you know what? I made it different. That 10-minute uh, intro chat we had about my last day in Ukraine and all the crazy shit that happened i think that's definitely worth listening to or watching so check it out on patreon <laughs> all right well, um you've convinced me i'm gonna rewatch it now <laughs> anyways uh safe travels johnny I look forward to hearing how you get to thailand in like a week from now because it's gonna take that long yeah. well i got the, i i got oh i don't want to spoil anything but yeah i'll have entertainment on my way there so <laughs> see you guys there see you guys next week Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment folios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.